Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to this episode of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author and PR consultant and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success strategies and resources for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Firstly, a quick announcement. I get a lot of people contacting me asking how they can work with me. So this is a little plug to let you know that I offer a range of services to vegan and plant-based business owners and entrepreneurs. From online training and group coaching to PR, content creation and copywriting services and one-on-one tailored individual private consultations. So if you're wanting help to promote or grow your vegan business, brand, product, service, book or other creative project, head over to veganbusinessmedia.com and click on the work with me menu link for more details. Now for the main part of the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Vegan Business Talk. I'm your host, Katrina Fox, and my guest today is a beauty industry veteran. His name is Tev Finger, and since 2006, he's helped to create, launch, and grow beauty brands across the globe through his company, Luxury Brand Partners. He does this by partnering with key talent while focusing on unique distribution models and collaborating on product innovation while staying on top of the latest consumer trends. Based in Miami, Florida, luxury brand partner products are currently sold in 23 countries across North America, Europe, Australia and Asia and can be found in top salons and speciality retailers, including Neiman Marcus and Net-A-Porter. Now a vegan himself. Yay, I love it. (laughs) Tev is focusing his efforts on investing in cleaner brands and ideas to not only help the planet, but also help push the beauty industry as a whole to reach for higher, cleaner, more sustainable standards that haven't been done before. Wonderful. In December 2020, Tev launched R&Co Bleu, I hope I've said that right, that's my French, Bleu or Bleu, um, (laughs) a clean, sustainable, vegan luxury hair care line, which is believed to be the first to introduce 100% PCR packaging. Tev, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really exciting. It is. I'm doing doing a show that actually like super is like important to me on a personal level. Because you know, like, never done something connected to the vegan part, so that's. Really oh, awesome. I love that! Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I am so happy. I'm always really happy when you know industry veterans such as yourself kind of see the light and you know what's going and actually commit to making the change and we're going to dive into that during our conversation so very happy to have you on the show let's kick off first with I'd love to just if you can just tell us briefly um how and why did you get into the beauty and hair care industry so I started off um it's funny you you had said 2006 and that probably is, is accurate from the luxury brand partner part but really my kind of introduction to the industry started in 1990. So I've, oh. I've kind of been in the, you know, as, as I've lost a hair for every year. So I've <laughs> um, been doing this a long time. And the, the first kind of introduction for me was actually a hair salon. So that was my, it was kind of like a first job as well as a friend doing a favor and, and saying, you know, why don't you try this? You may enjoy it. Um, 
And it was really the furthest thing of what I thought I'd end up being doing in my life was working, was working in a hair salon. Um, not, I'm certainly not creative where I could cut hair. Um, knew that I didn't have that skill, but um, there was a salon owner that was kind of a family friend that, uh, that you know, took a liking to me and said, come and just work for a little while. You may enjoy it. And, and he was spot on. I really did enjoy it. So kind of the entry point was a hair salon. And um, luckily for me, that uh, hairdresser, um, the salon at the time was called Bumble and Bumble, and it was in New York City. And it was a fairly successful salon um, in, in the early 90s. Um, but the, like a lot of hairdressers and, and owners, they were, he was quite, um, a, it was a visionary, you know, it really was an artistic driven visionary. So business people can be business, but also visionaries. And they're not always and sometimes it can be too much business and sometimes too much visionary and just finding a balance. But he definitely was a visionary. And um, I was very lucky to kind of have that as a starting off point. Um, and he had this crazy idea to start a product line. And that product line was was uh, Bumble and Bumble. And I remember telling him, I said, this is a terrible idea. I don't think, I definitely don't think we should do this. <laughs> and and he said, no, 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 this is going to be huge. You know, um, we, we've got to do this. And I said, all right, well, if we do this, um, there's a lot of competition. So I kept trying to come up with every reason why not to do it, which through my journey in life, as you're an entrepreneur, um, you're always going to find that people are doing that to you. They're always telling you probably why you shouldn't do something. Um, and I think as an entrepreneur, you should be very aware of why you shouldn't, but you should also search for the reason why you should. And um, for me, it was a he was a, he was a great mentor to kind of make us think we could do the impossible. I mean, the reality at that point in time, a tiny hair salon creating their own hair product to go up against Paul Mitchell and Aveda and these huge brands. And because we didn't know any better, we, I think that was part of our success. We didn't like most people probably would have said, what are you doing? Are you crazy? And we just started selling our product and doing our thing. And one of the things, and this is in the nineties, he happened to be a very health conscious um, hairdresser. So he wasn't a vegan, but he was pretty much vegetarian. And um, he was very much into holistic medicine. And he loved um, um, uh, like uh, Ayurveda and, and yoga and all that kind of stuff. So that, you know, that was kind of an introduction. It, it kind of it wasn't a far, you know, veganism, and it, there's, there's levels, I guess, right? And so from a health conscious perspective, he was way ahead of his curve. And one of the brands that he thought we should kind of kind of go after and build a better version of was Aveda. And at that point, Aveda really broke. Uh, if you look back in time in the 90s, Aveda really broke a lot of paradigms. They were really the first healthy kind of conscious brand that that saw the world in a different way. Now, what's really interesting is I'm not sure from a health perspective <laughs> that it was any more healthy than the most of the brands that were out there at the time, but at least the desire was there. And I think um, what's really interesting, if you span over the last 40 years now, um, there's been a huge movement now to, to the real quality side and the efficacy of health. So health was a buzzword. Um, and, and I think had very good intention. I think Aveda had very good intention. Like we had a good intention. We had, we put a lot of seaweed and kelp in our first shampoo at Bumble Bumble, which was like, staggering if you can imagine at that time everything else was was chemicals if you yeah imagine. um yeah but the bottles were all plastic and you know no one this is kind of before so for me having that start we ended up uh building a business and sold it to estee lauder in 2006 wow. and so um at a very kind of at a young-ish age um 
I had a you know first entrepreneurial success and I loved it. And so most entrepreneurs thrive off of the of the game, not necessarily just the 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 score, but um, you know they enjoy they enjoy what they do. So I certainly did, and um, I looked for the next opportunity, and that was a brand called Orbe Hair Care. And yeah, was, I was going to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, because that was an it was simplistic, really. I, I Bumble was kind of a lower price point, and for Orbe, if you fast forward 15 years later from when we started Bumble to the when we started Orbe, the world changed a lot. So at Orbe, we took sulfates out and parabens, and I mean this is going back to 2008, 2007, 2008 at that point. We took sulfates, parabens. We started messing around with cleaner uh, formulas and less chemicals. The packaging was still um, completely full of plastics and everything. Because at that point in 2008, it still was just the mentality wasn't there yet. Plus, you know, the manufacturers really were not, you know, that that's a big part of this, the health movement, you know, the manufacturers have to move with the movement. So to launch a product and, and, you know, if no manufacturers are making, um, you know, um, sustainable packaging, it's going to cost you 10 times the price. So there's a little bit of kind of like the awareness of the world has to move to match mm-hmm. what you want to do. So I think the intention of wanting to be a healthy brand uh, creator, I've had that since, since the nineties, but the real reality is Orbe still wasn't there, but it was definitely a big movement for us. Like, uh, it's like, if you look at the history of, of uh, people, it's just, you know, there's like these moments where you keep jumping. Um, yeah. And what happened after we, um, so we, we started Orbe also built that brand up and sold that in 2018 to a Japanese corporation called Cal Corporation. Um, in 2014, as Orbe was doing really well, and I could see the trajectory, and you, you kind of know as an entrepreneur, when you have something that's working that it's going to exit, you start to understand there's like you have to read the tea leaves and you can say, this is going really well, the revenue's there. It's, it's just a matter of time at this point. Um, or or uh, in 2014, I really said, well, look, there's a gap now for health and um, the sustainability thing is getting louder and louder. And now I think we should really kind of focus a brand on that. And so that was R&Co. It started becoming a, a much healthier brand. So when we launched R&Co, it was vegan, which was highly unusual in 2014 to have a vegan mm. hair care brand. Um, that was on a big level. Um, it's, a, it's a lot easier if you're more of a mom and pop business um, because you may even be making it yourself. So it's a little easier to, you know, to facilitate that. But if you're trying to make a product that has big distribution and going to hair salons all over the country and has to be stable on the shelf, that was quite a big ask. And um, we were, you know, we started taking out all the yucky stuff out of out of the product. And um, the thing is, R&Co launched similar to that Bumble and Bumble price point. So I always say it was like a it was like a mid-series BMW from a price point. It wasn't a Rolls Royce, but it wasn't, a, you know, the, the cheapest car either. It was right mm-hmm. in the middle. Um, and R&Co did really well because it was like a very affordable, healthy brand. So in salons at that point in the U.S., you had, you know, Orbe, which was like a Rolls Royce, but it wasn't healthy. And you had Bumble and Bumble, which was not necessarily healthy. And you had Aveda, which was kind of healthy. And you had a lot of everything else in between. So I really thought there was a gap now for a, a very healthy, sustainable brand that was at the affordable level. And so that really was a creation of R&Co. And something very interesting happened in R&Co only about uh, two years ago, where we realized, wow, now there's a gap as well at the Rolls Royce level 
of a healthy, so a luxury version of a healthy brand that's sustainable and doesn't have all the bad stuff in it. And that was a very hard thing to do because um, the the manufacturers had no interest. I mean, we were when we were trying to build Arnco Blue, which were, it's either blue, blue, everybody's pronounced it differently. It's kind of the funnest to always come up with a name that's difficult. That's kind of what I've always learned because if people are trying to focus on how to say it, they're focusing on you. <laughs> so so um, we we started uh, trying to to find a manufacturer that could do you know sustainable packaging. And it was very interesting. Two years ago, you were getting five. Oh, I've just lost your audio. Um, oh, you're back now. Is it back? Yeah, I just lost you, can, you for a minute. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Um, so five years ago, um, you could get uh, – sorry, two years ago, you could get 5% PCR. That was kind of – and that was like them pushing it. Tell and us what that is. What is so PCR post, packaging? Post-consumer recycled. So it's basically right. saying you want your um, – we wanted our plastic to be made from plastic that's already been made. So we're just right. reusing it and not having to, to burn more resources and make new plastic. So that way we're just kind of taking what's already been made and reusing it over and over and over again, because mm-hmm. that's a great, that that's sometimes even better than making something that's like even bamboo, right? right? It grows and it dies and it's renewable, which is awesome by the way. Um, but if you could just use something that's already been made, I mean, there's probably no easier way to, to there's probably nothing better for the planet than to do what you've already done. Um, and so the challenge with that was we were kind of running into what well, we're only 5%, uh, you know, a, a PCR. And that was a big issue for us because I honestly felt like that was a little bit of a greenwashing. Um, mm. And I know, and it was very sincere. Like we were like, well, look, if everyone's zero, five's a start. So I had, a, I think that was um, our, our intentions were, were very, very good, but, but I got to tell you, um, I was pushing our manufacturers from day one and they were not loving it and the pricing they were giving us. And that's where the problem started to come in. You know, the pricing was like, well, yeah, we can do it. We'll do 50%, but it's, but it's going to be like two times the price that you're norm- that you're used to paying or three times the price. Which means it's then going to be more, the product yeah, more expensive. Remember this, the, you know, and, yeah. and I was okay because this was a luxury product. So I, I figured, okay, well, they're paying more for it. So that part I'm okay with, but it shouldn't be that way. It should mm-hmm. not. And so I really tried to find some manufacturers and I said, look, do this with us and you'll be the first in the game and you're going to pick up all the business. And that's exactly what happened. We found one or two manufacturers that were open-minded. Um, they didn't charge two times the price, which I thought was amazing. Um, they looked at it kind of like a, not like a study or a, more like a test. They were like, well, let's Let's give it a go. I mean, one thing that I will say that was a little bit of a maybe an unfair advantage is that we'd had a lot of successes that you could look up and, and, and read about. So they felt like it wasn't too risky to, uh, yeah. to partner with us. And I think if you're an entrepreneur, um, maybe that would have been a little bit of a harder road to to go over. I think it's always good to kind of be aware of what things are easy or not. You know, yeah. Not. Nice. Thank you. Thank you for so, sharing that. Yeah. yeah so I, I think, um, but but I will tell you that we found we found some great companies to partner with us. And they all came with like, okay, well, we can do the 50%. And at that point, there was one other hair company that existed, actually Australian company, strangely enough, um, who won't name names, but uh, but they were roughly 5%. Um, and they were kind of the market, if you can imagine, that was the market leader of sustainability, was 5%. And so here we had the lab selling us 50. And I remember saying to our team, like, 
if you can do 50, you can do 100. Mm-hmm. Just think about it. It's like, it's, it's what, just do everything you were doing at the 50, but then do it all the way. And yes, their machines have to have different tooling capabilities and the heat levels are different, but it can be done. And so I'm so glad because they, we came very close to doing it at 50%. And we kept pushing them and pushing them. And they ended up saying, yeah, we'll do it. And now I really think we set a trend because we were the first, you know, one of the first beauty brands to really be fully, and, and I don't know if, you, um, if you've seen the brand yet, but it's a luxurious, gorgeous brand. It, it, looks, it looks like a $150 bottle of hair shampoo or something like that. Um, yet it's made from plastic that's been made many times over before. Um, so we, we were super, super proud of the, of the actual packaging itself, as much as we're proud of the, the inside, which is as healthy as, as we believe you can get, but still having performance. And that's, yeah. I think, where the, where the uh, historically, where the challenge has been, right? In, in any type of, uh, vegan, I think is a big word, but whether it's just healthy, from you think of healthy brands, um, the, the quality of the performance has had a harder time catching up with some of these chemical companies. But there's a trade, right? Because I don't want chemicals on my body. I never have. And so I've always, just as a, you know, preferred, I'd, I'd pay more anytime I could to get organic or clean or, you know, you know, that's just a personal choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Whole Foods, the proliferation of Whole Foods in the U.S. and um, really started to show me, these were things I saw in the market that said, well, people are clearly happy to pay more as well. And so it gave me a lot of um, conviction to to keep doing what we were doing in our brand. So it, when, when you think of the packaging in our Co, it's not just the, the bottles now and the goo in the bottles, but it's also like the, the cartons. So yeah. the paper is made from 100% uh, recycled paper that's already been used before as well. We've put seeds in some of the packaging where the seeds grow. You, you throw your box away and the box turns into uh, wild wildflowers. So oh, nice. um, we've tried to really kind of break a lot of uh, barriers within what we can do with the product. And, and we're just getting started. I mean, that's what's excited, exciting yeah. about this brand. I think there's a lot more to still accomplish. Yeah, um, fantastic. You know, there's some so, really t- – yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. That's all right. So let me ask you. So in terms of with luxury brand partners, uh, so do you, you, because you've got quite a lot in your portfolio, a lot of brands, like do you own all of those or are you, um, you do, so you're not just a strategic business advisor. So so we're a very unusual business in that we're, we're part entrepreneurs because we love building brands. So we're brand builders and we come up with ideas for brands and we see gaps in the market. Um, it's, It's kind of what we love about the business. But the other half or the other third of us is we are like a private equity company as well. So we also look for, um, you know, we make the investments and we, um, you know, we put up, we, we invest the money as well. It's our, our cash. So we're kind of part banker, private equity, part entrepreneur creating. And then third is we're the operators, which is really interesting because it's like having three different mm. types in one business. A lot of times um, an entrepreneur can be, one or two of those. It's rare that you have a business where you're performing all three functions. And um, the, so, do you own a hundred percent? Do you own a hundred percent of the companies then, or a part? Uh, no, some of them, the it might be part. Most of the time, we own the majority. There's been a long okay. time we haven't, um, right. and it was a wild success at the time we didn't. So, I'm I'm actually very open to not owning the majority. It's just that if you're going to put in all the money, come up with the idea, run it, and then you have a face connected to it, you should really own the majority majority because doing majority of the work 
So yeah. um, on, on average, the, the, we own probably 80%. That's our, kind of our average that we own. And then the, the partners. So, you know, for us, it's been, that's kind of the luxury brand partners part wasn't yeah. actually us. It's that we're partnering with, you know, um, really people that know what they're doing in their domain in business. So whether it's a makeup artist, a hairdresser, um, a nail polish expert, um, today could just be an influencer as well. Doesn't so, um, and, and we tech, we like to get someone who has a skill set who is also an influencer. So that's kind of like a new, a, a new paradigm is to try and get something like, um, I'll give you an example. One of the brands we have is called One Size. Um, and it's a very exciting makeup brand that we launched in Sephora. Actually, we launched literally um, in August of last year, which is in the, in the middle of COVID. So we, we had one customer, which was Sephora, and the door was closed basically for the most of the year. Um, and the brand still did phenomenally. I mean, you know, you know, talking about like over $10 million in the four months, four or five months. Um, so From it's online crazy. sales. Very, very, uh, and they did most of their sales online. It's from that, yeah, from online. Yeah, yeah got it. Um, so you're looking for, yeah. So when you're looking for. I mean, online, you know, COVID's slowly going yeah. away, thank God. Right. Um, and so now you're getting door sales as well as the online. Um, and a lot of that I attribute to, um, the founder being a makeup artist, but also an influencer. So that's oh, kind of okay. that. That's kind of that dual function that you're that we kind of tend to look for now. So the business is always changing. Right. That's what's Got exciting. It. It's like from yeah from how we started a long time ago to today, we're always um, adapting to who can help promote the business the most. And then we, what hasn't changed is, is the good business acumen in the background to run a business because I truly believe all businesses on the back end are the same. Right. They, yeah. They need, you know, you got to make really hard decisions. You got to say, what's my software I'm using? What warehouse is it? Third party. Am I going to do my own? You know, um, how much do I want to lay out for, or do I just use Shopify, which is embedded? You know, you don't have to start your own yeah. software, right, to do that. Yeah. So there's, there's all these millions of decisions that you kind of have to make as an entrepreneur, um, which, you know, I'm always, my heart always bleeds for entrepreneurs because I know how hard that is and it can be so daunting. That's why I think, you know, you're, your podcast you're doing probably really helps a lot of people in a really big way. And yeah, and that's the aim of it. Yeah. I think it's great to, to help people and, and pay it forward. You never know what that'll, you know, hopefully someone who's listening to this one day comes to us and wants to do a brand. And next thing you know, there's a partnership because they heard a podcast. You never yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. I know certainly was at least someone I know in the UK who I think will be good to get in touch with you. Kelly, if you're yeah. listening, yes, I'm talking to you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, I wanted to say, uh, ask you, Tev, uh, so I know you, when you talked about uh, Oribe, I probably pronounced that wrong. Uh, Oribe. No, that's fine. That one also uh, that one's also good. Oh, wonderful. You mentioned, I think this is helpful to know for now for brands is, like you mentioned, going up against these big conglomerates who, you know, can cut the prices. So if, you know, you've got a brand, a vegan, clean, sustainable brand is starting up, how can they now at this particular time in this day and age, how can they go up against these big conglomerates? What's your advice there? The great question. I, look, the first thing is um, conglomerate. A conglomerate by nature is big. I mean, that's the thing. So you, I think what you have to do, and, I, and every single business that I've ever in, either invested in or operated and run and been a part of like Luxury Ram Partners, I really believe that the strategy behind a brand is like 99% of the battle is, is how you kind of perceive it and what the gaps are and what you're going to do and how you're going to fill it. So 
Um, that's a really important question if you're going to build a brand that's going to go up against conglomerates. And I think from a simplistic perspective or a macro perspective, um, conglomerates are huge by definition. And when you're big, you move slowly. Mm-hmm. So big is powerful, but it's slow. There's yin and yang to everything. Slow is the Achilles heel of a conglomerate. Quick and maneuverability is the advantage to a startup. And you can pick them apart all day long. And that's the wonderful thing about being an entrepreneur, especially um, you know, for a conglomerate to say, I want to go to 100% PCR. Do you know what a big deal that is? I mean, if, if, if they've got to change such a plethora of stuff has to change inventory, stuff all over the world. They've got to change labels in every country. So when you think of yourself, you could probably make that decision pretty quickly if you're a startup small brand. You can say, okay, let's go to 100% PCR as an example. So there's every decision can, can follow that. So there's things you can do um, that I think give you a huge advantage to conglomerates. Um, the second thing is um, customization is a lot easier when you're small um, from a business perspective than it is when you're big because it's hard to customize to so many people. But when you're smaller, you can have a more customized message um, that that can be tweaked more often. Um, remember, conglomerates, you know, they, they'll often, I mean, conglo- true conglomerates like Estee Lauder or, you know, L'Oreal, these, these big companies, they, I mean, like Estee Lauder, I think has like a hundred brands below it. Mm. And one of those is Mac. And that's a billion dollar company. So when you think about that, that is a massive company. Just that's almost like a conglomerate on its own when you think of the size of a Mac. So most people, if you're going to do a makeup brand, you're thinking, well, how do I go up against Mac? But you're actually also going up against Estee Lauder. That's really kind of daunting and scary. But I don't think it's so scary because you can say to yourself, well, what are the intrinsic weaknesses of being that big? And how can you pick them apart? And so that's you know, that's where I would start to focus and answer those questions is what we do with every single brand that we do. We're never ever the big one. Right. I suppose as well, it's the, the customer perception as well. Like customers get locked into buying the products that they recognize from the TV ads and the big names, and it's kind of getting them to try something new. I guess that's the one thing. But the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is because a lot of, I think some of your brands anyway, are salon only brands. Can you talk to us about the advantage of, or the pros and cons of salon, on, salon only products or salon, as I believe you say in America? There's another yeah, word. We've got lots like, of words I mean, with different emphasis. I mean, I mean, I've got two ways of saying it. Um, so here's the thing. There really isn't such thing as a salon only brand anymore. Um, it, it used to be like that. But if you think of like R and Co right now, we sell, we sell to salons, we sell department stores, we sell in blue mercury, which is like, a um, similar to in Australia would be like Mecca, right? Um, Me- Mecca, whatever the, I can't remember the rest of it. Mecca is the, you know, that store that you guys have, um, do you know the one in, in no, Australia? Okay. It's in Sydney. It's called Mecca. <laughs> They're kind of like a Sephora-esque kind of store. Oh, really? We've got um, Sephora here. Okay. Yeah, so Mecca <laughs> is like, like an Australian version of that. Um, which oh, I mean, they okay. do a really great job. Very, very cool, cool uh, store. But um, we sell to all kinds of places like that. And then also on DTC, as well as, um, you know, places like Fred Siegel and, 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 and cool little clothing shops even. So it's, it's, you're, you're, you're no, I think what's changed in the world is everything is omni-channel now. So um, I, I just think that's the way, the way the world is now. And consumers expect it, even on Amazon. So our salon-only brands still sell on Amazon as well. Oh, so okay, right. it, it's, so I think the salon-only model has kind of, 
has kind of died. Um, and, and it's interesting. But, I'm but asking we're perceived that. that way. Uh, right. Yes, exactly. But the reason I'm asking is because when my partner, we moved to Sydney, Australia from the UK in 2001. And to get our visas, we actually started a hair and a vegan hair and beauty salon because although my partner's a clinical hypnotherapist and naturopath back in the day when she was much, much younger, she used to work as a hairdresser and she was really good. So we started this, um, we, it was vegan, we called it the natural hair and beauty shop. And I remember back then, as you say, like, because my, I don't do any of the creative stuff, you know, but I would source all the products to make sure they were vegan and that was like our number one um you know criteria and then obviously right. you know as natural as possible wherever we could wasn't always possible with perm solutions for example right. oh, um but yeah. but all of this but like it was quite tricky but because that certainly in those days they were like salon only products so there were more vegan products available direct to consumer but the salon only ones it was quite difficult I remember us sourcing it wasn't necessarily environmentally friendly there was one particular product that was um Parisian like French um mm. and then we managed to get an Australian district we finally found an Australian distributor that would bring them in um so yeah it's just interesting how that's um yeah how that's changed it definitely has changed now um and there was a moment when when we were selling Bumble by the way at that point it was like a religion so if you were you were salon only and if you didn't do salon only they threw you out of the salon so <laughs> that whole kind of um paradigm has shifted now where it's a much more open market. But I will tell you, the perception of R&Co is that it's a salon brand. And, mm. and that's actually a very accurate perception because most of the money we spend is focused on the salon stylist at a high performance level. And the consumer is a secondary thought for us. Not that it's a non-thought, but it's a secondary. Um, and you have to pick in a business, right? You got to pick who you're your first circle is, right? And for us, we think of the stylist. And from the stylist, they have their clients that come in and then they say, we love this brand. This is what we do. So in order to have that, we have a really robust education program that we spend tons of money on to, to focus on those stylists. So, so I can tell you right now, I think of it as a salon only, but it's definitely not from a sales perspective. Sales perspective is probably 60% from the salon channel and 40, everything else. That's kind of the, the breakdown. So it's interesting you say that you funnel a lot of the money into the education because I know as well from a salon perspective, like salon owners can be, and I know like from you know, being one for a little while, can be quite um, uh, fickle. Uh, you know, you oh, can yeah. kind of go with something and then, you know, a sales rep oh, will come totally. and go, oh, we've got these new products. And, yeah. and my first question is, is it vegan? If it is, yes, okay, come and tell me about it. And then it's like, yeah. okay, fine, we'll try and ditch the other one. So I guess that yeah. uh, can be a, a challenge is you to know, continue to it, it educate. Is. But again, it's kind of the opportunity as well, right? So every, every challenge kind of creates an innate opportunity. And the opportunity inside that is we'll then do really good education and that becomes your product more than your product. So the way that we win salons over is we, we give education at a level that others can't compete because we're hiring the best names out there and we're giving them unlimited amounts of education. By doing that, it's like they can't just take the next shiny box that comes along. Now, in r Co's case, we made the shiny box so good that it's going to take a couple of years for someone else to produce and make a line that has all of the 100% PCR, the, the chemical side as clean as we have it, you know, um, and then get the distribution right. And then also have the know-how. So we've created quite a strong uh, moat around the brand and, and it's growing. You can always tell, I mean, the Co. I mean, Orbe, the brand um, sold for almost half a billion dollars. That was a really wow. big exit. In, in just one hair care brand 
um, mm-hmm. R&Co is on track to be a much, much bigger brand. And so I can, you can see that mm-hmm. in how it's resonating. And I think it's because all the things are firing, um, firing really well. So yeah. I think for entrepreneurs out there that are thinking about creating, um, whether it's a hair care brand or whatever you're looking for, is uh, what I would tell you is really study the market and look for those holes to fill and then look at the best way to fill those holes that you can afford to do and then really focus your money and you can't do everything. You know, that the, the conglomerates have the money. to They can way outspend you on digital advertising. Mm. They can outspend you on print advertising if you're still doing that. Um, they can outspend you on TV and, and the radio or anything else. Yeah. And then they can also outhire people from you and they can hire a lot more people than you have. They can have bigger offices. They can put on bigger productions. Um, so you just have to figure out, well, what is it that you can do that you can do a lot better? And, and you'll find quality. I always think quality and messaging can be more powerful than just noise and, and, and loudness and bigness. Um, and, and I actually think in this world that we're moving into now, I think that it's the, the landscape is actually starting to shift to the smaller business because smaller is being perceived as cooler and more unique. And that's great for entrepreneurs. That's great. I mean, I still think of us as small business, believe it or not, because um, <laughs> we start lots of startup brands, you know, one, one a year is what we average. Oh, wow. So, okay. so we're, we're in the game starting anew from the beginning and, and we don't just throw money at the brands. We really look at each one as a unique thing. So I, I, I see a shift in the mentality. I think there's almost a little bit of a pushback on big branded brands. Yeah. And so that's a nice little opportunity that exists now for, for certainly for the people I'm sure that listen that are listening yeah. to this. No, that's a um, good point. Yeah, because I know that some big brands are br- starting to bring out vegan versions of their products. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I hope that if you have enough elbow grease, you can try show your customers why yours is better right, and right. and why yours just isn't the V symbol. There's more to it than just that. Right. Yeah. Um, and also make sure that do do your homework. I'm not sure. I see a lot of symbols on packaging that I don't think are are um, accurate. I was going to ask you about that. Um, what is yeah. your thoughts on certificate? Because you're right. You know, a lot of companies can just say their products are vegan or they're clean or they're sustainable yeah. and green. Um, what are your thoughts on the importance or not of actual certifications? On- well, I think we're going through. It's actually really interesting. I think right now, literally, we're going through a certification um, renaissance right now where, I mean, there's literally new certifications. I remember, you know, five years ago, it was like Leaping Bunny and, you know, the USDA organic, right? There was like a couple. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't keep up, actually. There's so many right now. And now there's ESG, EWG, all the big ones that you pay a lot of money for and... um, so I, I think that you also have to be able to afford, you know, you pay for these certifications as well. Mm-hmm. There's a cost. And so for a little startup to certify every badge on your product, I don't think that's necessary. Um, you know, I think that if you have got a, an Instagram and a following and you're a very passionate founder and you tell people what you have, it's certifications are just one part of it. Now, you'll get to a point where you go, you start to become a bigger business beyond just your community and who listens to you and who's buying from you. And so when you start going into, say, a Whole Foods or a bigger distribution, those certifications start to become a little bit more necessary because people just shop a little bit more in a funnel and they need to see those. 
Um, we all, we're not, all of our brands are not equal in that we have different certifications that meet the different criteria for different brands. Um, we have a brand in our portfolio right now that it's a high performance brand and we can't make it where those, some of those certifications apply, but, but it's a hairdresser brand on the performance level that it's a bond builder that fixes hair. There's just no way we can get that. So that's a different brand for a different group of people. And I think the trick is to just be really honest to the people that you're building the brand for and who you're building for and give them the truth and make mm. it as good as possible, obviously. Yeah. So that's, I think, not trying to be everything to everybody. So, mm. um, but I will tell you, there isn't a brand we're thinking about um, that we're everything now for us is healthy health perspective as as green as it can get um and sustainable as it can get that's kind of our mentality and a lot of it is going back to some of the brands we already have and actually um fixing some of the i was going to ask you that now that you've become vegan yourself and become more conscious of all of this will you be going back to the current brands that you've got and saying hey make some tweaks it even gets more complicated so r and co blue um was 100% PCR, but Arnco wasn't when it launched. It was regular plastic uh, Boston round bottles. So we're now in the process of turning that. I think we're our target right now is 50% within a year, and then to get to 100% within two years. So because it's remember what I was saying. For, think about, and we're not a huge conglomerate by any means. We're, we're small companies. Where I think of us, can you imagine how hard that is for big companies to go back and turn all that inventory? Yeah. So yeah. that's the advantage of a young. If you're a vegan-minded entrepreneur and you're going to start a business day, you get to you get to start with a clean slate and it's not messy. And so you can make exactly what you want. And consumers are looking for really cool brands like this. Yeah, definitely. You know, they, In they, terms of marketing, I know you mentioned that 60% of your businesses are actually salon owners and, and the rest are uh, consumers. Where are you marketing? What kind of forms of marketing are you finding to be oh, most successful? Well, that's – so our – as a whole, the whole company is 60% revenues derived from salons right. and then 40 rest. All the other brands are different. I mean, the uh, one size, which only, you know, is a fairly new brand for us. Um, 0% is salons, right? It's all consumers through Sephora or DTC. Oh, okay. Right. So they're so all in terms, different. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of your marketing, other than them obviously being in the retail stores where people can see them, you mentioned Instagram a couple of times. Is that at the moment, would you say that's the key place for hair and beauty brands to raise awareness and possibly sales um it's funny you say that you know i think that's the obvious place that everybody's looking right now um i'm actually a really big fan of um going where everybody isn't looking and i still think radio tv print magazines in conjunction with the digital world um are really important um Believe it or not, we've had a lot of success when we send out an R and Co. Um, it's like a very coarse paper because we want to, you know, just want to show the health and the sustainability. So it's like a super coarse paper that we print like a. Uh, we used to do like a quarterly thing that we would send out to all of the salons and it would sit on the tabletop. That drove more business than any Instagram you could ever do because some people still like to touch and flip the pages of, you know, I don't, I wouldn't put everyone in the world just because you use digital doesn't mean you can't have a magazine or a book in your house. And so I think there's a, um, for, for the young entrepreneurs out there, you're getting great deals now on the other world because everybody shifted to the digital world. So you, there's great deals. Radio is still a very powerful medium to drive, uh, awareness. 
and even like that, like a podcast is a, it's not necessarily an Instagram that we're doing right now, but, but a podcast like this is, is a very powerful way to, to drive awareness. So I think I, I look at all of them as weapons. And while everybody's focusing on one, the price has been devalued on the others. So that's where you should be spending some of your money because those others are just as powerful. And a consumer that buys into your brand, as long as it's authentic and real, and you continue to do the good service that you do, you should be able to have them find other people and they might use the digital uh, realm, right? Facebook, Instagram to promote. There's nothing better than getting people to talk about a product they love. And it turns out that in beauty, that happens a lot. And in food, that happens a lot. So yeah. if, if you go to a restaurant, I mean, think about it. Some of the restaurants that you find out about most often are from hearing about it from somebody else. Unless you're a foodie and you read the, you know, foodie times, right? Or, or, <laughs> or an Instagram on websites. But for me, I'll always hear someone say, oh, I've tried this great restaurant. You should try it. And I think that that's kind of what I'm always striving for in our brands is that you get people to use the product and fall in love with it and just recommend it. to. T- if every one of our Arnco users recommended it to 10 people, we would grow by 10x which that's, you're not growing by 10x just by heavily buying AdWords on uh, Google, right? So yeah. so there's definitely um, the old school way of doing business still exists and it's still powerful. It's just about meshing the two together. And of course, there's we spend a lot of money on the digital side as well, but it's not yeah. all of it. Um, and um, it also is brand specific as well. So there's certain brands that are very, um, that lend well to, to the digital world. Like makeup has done very well because it's such a, you can see it so clearly on a digital canvas. Hair is a little more difficult to see um, because you know, you're not, it's like I'm looking at your hair now. I can't see the fine hair. Like <laughs> in the one probably spot good. Dark, right? <laughs> I can't see in that dark spot. Is it, is it uh, soft? Is it um, you know, more frizz? Is it not frizz? It's a bit frizzy today because I did a hot yoga class yesterday. So it's, but your makeup, I can see you're wearing red lipstick. Oh yeah, definitely. (laughs) So so there are things uh, in the digital world that, you know, um, lean in towards um, the the brands and food is a lot harder online. Like Mm. if you think about it, it's like you can't taste it, you can't smell it and you're just looking at it. So, you know, yeah. Food is, and I think, um, you know, we're talking about vegan. It's always makes me kind of laugh too, because no one ever ate shampoo. Um, but the concept of being vegan for us was really to tell the world that it's not just about the eating it. It's about the, the, the thoughtful and mindfulness about um, all, everything else you touch animals, the world. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, exactly. so, um, so we get that a lot, believe it or not, people are always, so we actually say gluten-free on, on our stuff as well, because it just happens to be, everything's gluten-free, vegan. So people are always like, well, what are we, we're not going to eat your shampoo. Yeah, yeah. Really kind of saying there's a more sensitivity value that we're dialing into. Now, remember I was saying, if you can dial into that right, uh, that fanatical uh, consumer that feels like you, that says, I do want gluten-free. I want vegan. I want a brand. Once you have that connection then you have a lifetime customer who's very valuable because the acqui- you know the one thing on the digital side is the acquisition cost the cac right i call it the cost yeah. of acquisition right that that's all people focus on and it's quite high in fact many companies will spend 2 dollars or a dollar to get 1 dollar of of revenue right 
you could just do a free uh, Instagram where you speak to people about your product, but you dial into what's important to them. And now they're telling people for free. It's very, that's a very good, uh, um, it's free marketing that then turns into sales. So, so I think that, you know, I think people sometimes obsess over the digital side and then don't get me wrong. We have influencers that, um, the, the makeup one that we just did, he's thinking he's got like I don't know, 15 million followers, which when we signed him up, I thought was a ton. And then it turns out there's lots of people that have 40 million or 50 million. And what you learn is that the, the sales doesn't necessarily always represent what the, it's not yes. a direct correlation to the thing. And, and that's probably the biggest learning in the last five years for me was really to see that and understand that. And so picking your influencer is critical. I have seen a mom and pop influencer with uh, it was 10,000 followers outsell a 10 million follower. I've heard of that. A lot of people are saying that it's the smaller, more engaged ones that are. That to me was like, why is this happening? I need to know what's going on here because this is the, this is the answer to the Holy grail. If you can, if you can figure this out and it, it truly ends up being that there's a connectivity that they have with their followers and if you can understand what those followers are really looking for and then speak it, you don't have to buy the AdWords to get in front of them all the time. You can just be mm-hmm. the kitschy, cool brand that is authentic. And, and I think that's another way of doing it. Or you do a hybrid mix of everything, which is what we tend to do, by the way. It ends up just being a mix of all, trying to kind of find what's working for every brand. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I'd just like to ask you briefly about pricing because I know you mentioned the numbers there because I think sometimes a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly in the beginning stages, get a don't quite price their products right. Like either uh, typically they were under charge. And so then if you get into a retailer or you, then you've got a distributor, so the more people you've got in the mix and then the entrepreneur ends up getting, uh, you know, not much profit on their product. Do you have any tips or advice on how particularly a startup um, hair or beauty brand should think about pricing their products? Yeah, pricing, is, that's actually a really, um, it's probably one of the trickiest things to get right, because you've got competitors that you have to, you know, most people are using something. So you have to get out of their hands, whatever they were using and your stuff into their hands. And I always think that like a good portion of customers shop by price, that they're just price conscious. Another portion shop, smaller portion, shop by scent, touch, um, you know, the visual appeal of the product. And and then you have um, another portion that shop on the goo, what I call the goo, which is like the ingredients. Is it healthy? Is it not? Is, and then another portion is performance-based. Don't care what the cost is. Don't care what it can have nuclear. How toxic it is. <laughs> but I need my hair to look a certain way or my makeup to look a certain Even way. Even if it's killing me. Yeah, it probably is. But um, So you've got this range of what's important to people. What you've got to figure out is who is your – if you're going to start a vegan brand, I can already tell you what's – I can already tell you what's going to be more important to people. The goo is incredibly important. So you then have to look, okay, so then who is charging what and who am I going up against? So if you can knock out your competitor for the same price but offer a better option, great. Um, But I can tell you there's certain things that drive price up. Goo ingredients happens to be one of those things. If you want a truly clean product, we live in a world where the cleaner product is more expensive to make, Mm. which kind of sucks because it should yeah. it really shouldn't should that's more natural and easy to get to it's just that everyone else is producing the other stuff so the 
capabilities are on the other side. I think that's turning, by the way, which is exciting, but it's, you know, it's a lot better than it was. So I think pricing is a super delicate game. Um, the one thing that I would always say is um, pricing too low and then going up is a much, is like a, putting a speed brakes on your sale and can really piss people off. I would actually price higher and come down. I personally think that's a better, you're on the right side of, uh, certainly on the right side of your customers. You're never going to get customers say, what did you do, Tev? You lowered your prices on me? I've never had that complaint. But I can tell you one thing, going low and ratcheting up, you, you know, you can piss a lot of people off and, and you don't want to do that. So so I think if you had to pick your poison, I'd go high, high and then drift down. Um, I also think that innately within the pricing sends a message, fortunately or unfortunately, there's a message that's sent with pricing and we're all susceptible to it. I don't know if you've ever had anything offered to you where you're, there's like the, the small, the medium and the large and the large yeah, has yeah. a bunch of things that are extra in it. Sometimes online, if you want to buy like identity theft protection and they're like, well, this one has this, 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 and this things that you don't even know what they mean. And you're like, well, it's an extra five bucks. I'll just upgrade to that. Yeah. People, no matter who you are, assume the higher the price, the better or the quality is there or the more value is there. So um, there are brands I've seen that absolutely have no reason to be charging what they're charging, but they're clever because they figured out that customer they're going for wants to pay a high price or they're not going to buy it. So there's a whole psychology even in pricing. So these are the things, I mean, we look at, I can talk about this stuff for years uh, <laughs> on end. Um, it's exciting because when you can start to break down all of this stuff and put it into a little box, um, you then get what I call like your final algorithm of what you think is right for your consumer. And then if you get that remotely right, you should find some success. Never going to get it perfect. And the best part of business, you can tweak it along the way. You can tweak your pricing a little bit. You can make your ingredients better. Um, if, if you can only afford a 50% um, PCR product because the vendor you like, is that's all they're doing, but you know it's going to get there, then start with 50 if you think you can get away with it, because that at least sends and tell people that you intend to be a hundred. Yeah. You just, you're yeah. at 50 right now because you can't afford to do it. But here's the thing. You put your money into the goo. And I think I'm a goo person. That's <laughs> me. I'm to me. I love packaging. I love scent fragrance, the visual. I love it all. But if I had my pick, I'd rather pay more and have a healthier product. That's me, but I'm not, I'm just one person, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really good advice, you know, and, uh, you know, as I say, particularly when the retailers start to get in, I know certainly on food, you know, it can be quite tricky because the retailers in, you know, for food want you to pay for the advertising. So whenever you go in, a friend of mine who owns a plant-based meat company said, whenever you see our products on sale, on discount at the big retailers, it's actually the brand that's having, you know, it's not good for the brand. So I feel a bit guilty now whenever I go in and I see their products like, you know, $3 off. I'm like, oh, and then I'm like, oh, shall I? Um, So I don't know if that's the same with the beauty. I'm assuming it's the same, you know, when you've got the retailers and the distributors, you've got to make sure that your retail price is high enough for you to pay everybody their cut before you even get your Yeah, it's funny. I think the same problem exists in in all business, right? If you sell your product to that middle person, right? Well, like food might be the grocery store or wherever. They always have the ability to discount and there's really nothing you can do about it. And and it kind of sucks because like I said, discounting sends a message too. So I hate discounting. Um, We, we, we never discount ever ourselves, And we try as hard as we can to not have our vendors discount. 
Um, but interestingly, in the U.S., um, it's actually illegal to control what people sell the product for. So yeah. you have to be very delicate on how you, you know, you can, you know, it's a man. In fact, uh, it's called the manufacturer suggested retail price, the MSRP. Uh-huh. Oh, it's really? Suggested <laughs> for a very particular reason, because otherwise you get um, there's price fixing and all kinds of things that come into play. So, so you know, there's a dance, but you can try and pick like-minded partners. That's what I would tell any entrepreneur as well. Try pick like-minded partners and, and don't just sell your product to somebody. Sell it to somebody who you feel gets the business and would make smart decisions. Mm. Um, and that they'll serve you very well, which is great. great. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. cornerstone of a business, good business. I love that. Tev, this has been brilliant. I think it's just so good to have someone who's such a, an industry veteran such as yourself who's now gone vegan and really going down this clean, sustainable, uh, you know, cruelty-free path. I think it's fantastic. Um, I love the uh, R&Co and the R&Co Blur. Um, and for anyone who wants to check out um, those brands, you can go to luxurybrandpartners.com, to randco.com and to blur.randco.com. If you're watching this episode on video, you'll see those URLs along the bottom of your screen scrolling along. And if you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, those links will be on the show notes page for this episode. Tev, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate you sharing your insights and your wisdom and look forward to seeing your brands continue to grow so thank you for joining me appreciate being here so that's it for this episode of vegan business talk i hope you enjoyed it and found it useful if you like the show please give it a review on itunes or whatever platform you're listening on as it helps to get it seen by more people There are more free resources on the veganbusinessmedia.com website to help you in your quest to build and sustain a successful business. And if you'd like to work with me personally on promoting and growing your vegan business or brand, you'll find details on how to do this on the website at veganbusinessmedia.com and clicking on the Work With Me menu link. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to catching up with you on the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now.